Good morning. Do you know this begins to be almost like old times? Hallelujah. Amen. Amen. Now you've found the scripture, haven't you, in whatever it is you use to follow the readings in, because you're going to need them. And it's Psalm 111. This is a most amazing psalm, or rather we have a very gifted person who chooses music, because what we have just been doing is exactly the first word of that psalm. So will you turn to Psalm 111, please? And I think I wrote it down on my text for today. It says, page 613 in the Church Bibles. Let's hope I've got it right. And I'd like us to begin, excuse me, but um, I need reading glasses, so I shall look over the top of them when I talk to you, and um, on the text when I want to read the text. I'd like us to read that psalm together. So for you it's page 613 or whatever. Are we ready? Okay. Praise the Lord. I will extol the Lord with all my heart in the council of the upright and in the assembly. Great are the works of the Lord. They are pondered by all who delight in them. Glorious and majestic are his deeds, and his righteousness endures forever. He has caused his wonders to be remembered. Lord is gracious and compassionate. He provides food for those who fear him. He remembers his covenant forever. He has shown his people the power of his works, giving them the lands of other nations. The works of his hands are faithful and just. All his precepts are trustworthy. They are established forever and ever enacted in faithfulness and uprightness. He provided redemption for his people. He ordained his covenant forever. Holy and awesome is his name. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All who follow his precepts have a good understanding. To him belongs eternal praise. Um, That (coughs) beginning of verse 1, it says, praise the Lord. What's the word? What's the Hebrew for that? Hallelujah. Hallelujah. We tend to run it all into one word. It means, let us praise God. The Lord. And we use the word so lightly, but it's so important that we know what we're saying. Hallelujah. Let us praise the Lord. So, this psalmist, the psalmist knows what he's up to. He knows what he's doing, and he starts in the right place. Let us, all of us, praise the Lord. Under what circumstances? And how do we do that? Well, it says, I will extol the Lord with all my heart. Thump, 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 thump. 
Now, in scripture the heart is the very depth of the being, the place where we make decisions, where we weigh the issues, and out of which comes the decisions that we make for the way in which we live our lives. So with all my heart, deep down inside me, there's something, there's something in me that says, praise the Lord. If you have that in you, <coughs> excuse me, if you have that in you, then you will praise the Lord. And the psalmist also is a bit careful, perhaps, of the circumstances in which he chooses to do that. It says, in the counsel of the upright and in the assembly. So, there are groups of people where he finds it more comfortable, perhaps, to do just that. In the company of the upright, in the company of godly people who live an upright life in the presence of the Lord. He's in fellowship. He's in fellowship with a group... <coughs> excuse me, sorry about this. <coughs> He's in fellowship with a group of people who habitually praise the Lord. Someone's going to get me a drink. I shall praise the Lord too. <laughs> and these people take delight in the works of the Lord. They take delight in his commandments. Now remember, this is from the Hebrew scriptures, what we call the Old Testament. The psalmist loves the words of the Lord as they are recorded in the Hebrew scriptures. What we call the New Testament is the book of the New Covenant. And we'll get there in the end. You'll see how it links up. So he is praising the Lord in the company. Oh, wonderful, Andrew. Bless you. Thanks very much. Might cure it. So we here are in a position to praise the Lord because his commandments are precious to us. Um, I just wonder, passing thought, um, whether there is a danger in many Christians these days concentrating specifically on the book of the New Covenant. There's a tendency to read it, to study it, to teach from it, but it's the outcome of all that has gone on in the so-called Old Testament. And this psalmist knows his Old Testament. So, he knows that they are, there are many, many reasons for praising the Lord. What does it say? It says, great are the works of the Lord. A work is something that you do. So what are the deeds of the Lord which encourages him to praise? Well, the psalmist gives a bit of advice, gives a bit of experience. He says, his people, the Lord's people, ponder his works. This means that they spend time actually meditating or chewing over the things that he has done. That's important. The things that he has done, as we will see, throughout 
Israel's history. And this psalm focuses so much on Israel. Israel is so precious to the Lord. Not because they were a huge nation, not because they were a righteous nation, because they weren't, but from the time when he chose them, because he loved them. If you want a reference for that, go and have a look in the book of Deuteronomy. Um, Moses talks about this. So from the time when he chose them, because he loved them, and because he made an oath to Father Abraham. We're going to look at that more in a moment. I just wonder whether at this point we might remind ourselves we need to take time as individuals to look back over the history of our lives and see how many issues there are for which we can praise the Lord. All the way he has led us from the time of birth, his hand was on us. How many things are there that we could praise him for? Useful exercise. Try it sometime. Every so often I get around to doing it. And I remember dear Peter saying on one occasion that it's like we're in a rowing boat. And we're rowing backwards, because that's what rowers do. We're rowing backwards into glory. But what do we see ahead of us if we look forward? We see the whole of our lives spread out in front of us with all the ways in which the Lord has dealt with us. And we can trace and ponder the wonderful things he has done in our lives. Perhaps we should try it more often. So, let's move on. Glorious and majestic are his deeds. And as the psalmist looks back and sees the things the Lord has done in Israel's history, he's got to say, glorious and majestic, majesty, kingship, lordship, glorious and majestic are his deeds and his righteousness, his righteousness endures forever. Now, this is another word that we trot out quite merrily. Now, I have a very useful book in the bookcase in my office, and it's called the Oxford English Dictionary. You'd be surprised. So I looked up the word righteous, and you know what it said? Morally right, fully justifiable, never changing. Think about that. Consider the works of the Lord. His deeds are glorious and majestic. He is generous in doing good. His righteousness endures forever. How long is that? How long is forever? Oh, well, you can't be saying stuff like that. The Lord's finished with them. Hang about. Is that right? No. Forever and all time. Verse 4 of the psalm. He has caused his wonders to be remembered. He has caused his wonders to be remembered. Where? In the Holy Scriptures. In the so-called Old Testament. The book of the former covenants, plural. And I'll tell you more about that in a minute. 
So in the scriptures we have a record of his dealings with his people. Get to know it a bit better. The works he has done are remembered even today. You're reading about some of them as we study this psalm. His works are remembered. We've no excuse for not knowing what he's done. And they are very revealing. They give us a picture of his character. They illustrate his character. And we discover that he is gracious. And he is compassionate. He does not treat us as our sins deserve. He is gracious and compassionate. This took me back in my thinking to Exodus chapter 34, verses 6 to 7. And you will remember the story when you look it up. On Mount Sinai, when Moses went up to the top of the mountain to receive the so-called Ten Commandments, or Ten Words, from the Lord, the Lord himself descended in a cloud, and he stood beside his servant Moses. And there he proclaimed his name. Now, in scripture, the person's name is representative of all he is. Think for forward, and you shall call his name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. Yeshua, the Lord, saves. His name incorporates what he is and what he does, and so the Lord proclaims his name to Moses. And he says, The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. That would not be a faithful thing to do, to let them get away with it. And Moses came down from the mountain, and what did he find? What have they been up to while he was there? They made the golden calf. But the Lord is gracious and compassionate. And Moses interceded for them, and the Lord agreed to go with them. His works, then, verse 5, display his character. Okay? One of the things he did while they were walking around in the desert was he provided food for them. He provided manna, and he provided quail. And they grumbled and groused all the time quite normal. But look at the second half of that verse. He remembers, what does it say? His covenant. There's the key word for this morning. He remembers his covenant for a couple of days. No? Forever. He remembers his covenant forever. Forever is a very long time. Right to the end of time. Here we have the first mention of his covenant. The Lord's dealings with Israel are governed by the covenants which he made with them. A covenant in scripture is a binding agreement. It is not a short-term contract. 
should we not be thankful? Um, in this context, there are two covenants which we need to consider. The first is a royal grant covenant, which is unconditional. And the Lord himself undertakes to keep that or fulfill that covenant at his own expense. Now that is very significant. And the second covenant which applies in the context of the people of Israel is a suzerain vassal or master and servant covenant. A conditional covenant where Israel agrees to the conditions and under those circumstances the Lord will do his part of the bargain. The Sinai covenant was a conditional covenant. The Lord undertook to be for Israel and to do for Israel everything they could possibly need. And they said, oh yes, we agree. For how long? Not very long. And so they broke it. So what sort of covenant is the Lord talking about in this particular um, context? And this is important. Second half of verse 6, what does it say? He has shown his people the power of his works. What does it say? Giving them the lands of other nations. So, at some point, he made a covenant with Israel, or rather with Abraham, to give them, to give to Abraham's offspring the lands of other nations. Now, that's not very popular. But this is the covenant he made with Israel, with Abraham. He promised to Abraham a posterity, and a land. And I quote here from Genesis. When the sun had set and darkness had fallen, a smoking firepot with a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces of the covenant. And on that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham and said, to your descendants I give this land from the Wadi of Egypt to the great river, the Euphrates. Ooh. Now the situation was that the Lord wished to make a covenant with Abraham and Abraham had to prepare the circumstances for that and he had to cut the pieces, the, um, the offerings in pieces and line them up and the Lord passed through between the pieces and undertook to fulfill the promise of land which he had made to Abraham. This is a royal grant covenant. The Lord, Yahweh, undertakes to fulfill the grant of the land and a self-maledictory curse is symbolically enacted. He will take responsibility for failure and he will pay the, pay the price. 
This is repeated in Psalm 105. I like this psalm. It's a very good psalm. You should read it sometime. Verses 9 to 11. And it says there, The covenant he made with Abraham, yes, the oath he swore to Isaac, and he confirmed it to Jacob as a decree, to Israel, Jacob and Israel, one and the same, as an everlasting covenant. To you I will give the land of Canaan as the portion you will inherit. Made with Abraham, sworn to Isaac, confirmed to Jacob as a decree. Jacob and Israel, remember that the Lord gave to Jacob Israel as a name. This is remembered by King David in a prayer of thanksgiving when the Lord made a royal grant covenant with him. And in Psalm, in Samuel chapter 2 verse, uh, sorry, 2 Samuel chapter 7 verse 23, David says, And who is like your people, like Israel? Is there another nation on earth whose God went out to redeem it as a people to make a name for himself, doing great and awesome things for them by driving out from before his people other nations and their gods. And you established your people Israel for yourself to be your people forever. And you, O Lord, are their God. Today, many people, many Christians, Question Israel's light, right to the land. Thinking, what on earth has the Bible got to do with the situation? Don't say anything about it in the New Testament. Why do the Israelis fight for it? Why do people of another faith demand the same territory from the river to the sea? What does Scripture say? What the Lord has done and the precepts which guided him are trustworthy. Out comes the Oxford English History Dictionary. What's a precept? It is a general rule intended to regulate behaviour or thought. What does the scripture say? His precepts are trustworthy. The works of his hands are faithful and just and all his precepts are trustworthy. They're short term? No. They are established forever and ever. And they are enacted, worked out, in faithfulness and uprightness. Wow. Verse 9, we're nearly there. He provided redemption for his people. Oh, per oh perfect redemption, the purchase of blood, etc. We, we know the hymn, we know the words. We know what it means for us. What about Israel? What does the word mean? To redeem something means to buy it back at a cost. Redemption does not come free. Remember the story of Ruth and Boaz, and Boaz redeemed Ruth's inheritance for her. Or deliver. It can mean that as well. And in this case, the Lord has delivered, redeemed Israel from the tyranny of slavery in Egypt. What was the cost of that delivery? How was it that Israel got away with it and the Egyptians didn't? 
What was the cost of that redemption? The blood of the Passover lamb. More about that later. And again we read this. Look at it again, twice. When something occurs once, oh well, yes, that's interesting. When it occurs twice, it's important. He provided redemption for his people. He ordained his covenant forever. Again, we've got this covenant forever. And this time, it's ordained. It's confirmed. It's an illustration of his character. His faithfulness is part of who he is. And I love this last verse. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All who follow his precepts have a good understanding. To him belongs eternal praise. The fear of the Lord. What do you understand by the fear of the Lord? Reverence and awe and wow. This is not hiding behind a stone. You find somewhere in the Revelation that in the end times, those who are again the Lord will hide behind the rocks and in the caves to get away from the wrath of the Lamb. This is not the fear of the Lord in the sense that we're talking about here. This fear of the Lord is the reverence and awe. Great, great understanding of those of us who have that fear of the Lord in us. Okay, now, so much for the psalm itself, but the problem is, how does that relate to us? And I spent quite a lot of time on this, and my conclusion is as follows. This is a psalm that relates particularly to Israel and her covenant relationship with the Lord. It refers back to the land covenant made with righteous Abram and his descendants, and it is a royal grant covenant which the Lord undertakes to, ref- to fulfill. The Lord's dealings with his beloved Israel are always on the basis of covenant. At Sinai, He made a different kind of covenant with Israel. And we're back to this suzerain vassal or master and servant, conditional covenant. And that's where we get the Ten Commandments from. And we trot them out quite merrily. We know them. One of the few parts of the um, Hebrew scriptures that we know well. Um, So he makes this conditional covenant with Moses on behalf of the people of Israel. And he undertook to be Israel's protector and the guarantor of her blessed destiny and to provide all they needed. Israel, on her side, was to be entirely consecrated to the Lord and they were to live by his rule. In other words, they were to follow the instructions in that covenant. Oh yes, everything the Lord said we will do, they said. Really? They failed 
miserably. It started with Solomon and it went on and on and on and on and on. Solomon's another story, we won't go there today, but they failed miserably. And after centuries of treacherous behaviour, and when they were about to go into exile in Babylon, to, as a penalty, as a punishment for their idolatry and, well, you know the story. The Lord, in his love and his mercy, made or promised, promised a new covenant. Jeremiah 31, wonderful chapter, I'm sure you know it well. And what he would do was because they had failed to keep the Sinai covenant, he would take a step to make that into what was effectively a royal grant covenant. He undertook to write his laws on their hearts and to provide redemption for them and to provide the power to keep the covenant. Yes? New covenant? And when we have communion in church, we, we read the verses um, in the same way from Luke's Gospel, at the last meal that Jesus had with his disciples before his death, he said, in the same, Luke says, in the same way after supper he took the cup saying, this is the new covenant in my blood which is poured out for you. The mediator of that new covenant was Jesus himself, the Passover lamb. The Passover lamb. After his crucifixion and his ascension and his resurrection and his ascension, he instructed his disciples to take the good news of repentance and forgiveness to all nations i.e. the Gentiles. We have heard and we have received this good news. We also relate only and always to the Lord on the basis of covenant. And I'd like to quote from the book of Ephesians where Paul is writing to a church in a particularly idolatrous city, Diana of the Ephesians and all that. And in chapter 2, verses 12 and 13, we read, Remember, you Gentiles, that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, and foreigners to the covenants of promise without hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you and me, who were once far away, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Hallelujah! Yes? Let's hear it. Hallelujah! Thank you.